0: Here we go. My name's Todd. This is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 656. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because it'll help you to feel outstanding. On today's show, we have a friend that we just met. Her name is Debbie Lewis, and I'll introduce her in a second. She wrote a book, and we're going to talk about the contents of that book in a second. But uh, Debbie, welcome. So glad you're here.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, I got to give you some applause. That's our version of applause. <laughs> um, I'm going to read the bio, sweetie, and then yep. and then you do the next thing. You got it. Debbie Lewis holds a BA and an MA in English and creative writing from the University of Wisconsin, where she was a recipient of the Eudora Welty Prize for Fiction. Her short fiction and essays have appeared in more than a dozen publications. Debbie is the author of kitchen medicine, how I fed my daughter out of failure to thrive. In 2005, Debbie's second daughter's birth began what would be a nearly decade-long journey through the confusion and inefficiencies of modern pediatric specialty medicine. Debbie lives in Evanston with her husband and two teenage daughters. She runs a small website, design business, enjoys cooking music, and playing the old-time Fiddle. i love that part sweetie why do we have debbie on here today
2: well debbie debbie's on here because she has this amazing book that actually came out in march um and so we want to talk to her about that but she's also a friend of our friend devora heitner and you know we like to make friends we do we're all doing similar work aren't yes. we debbie mm-hmm. indeed Um, so, so Debbie, you know, Todd, obviously just read your bio and gave kind of a little brief summary, but, um, you know, I know the story is long. I know that there's a lot of layers to it and hopefully we can get into some of them, but why don't you start by telling us the premise of this book, kitchen medicine, um, and why you wrote it.
1: Sure. Um, so, Kitchen Medicine is the story, um, as it says in my bio, of of the journey from birth to age nine of my younger daughter, who, among other medical challenges, um, mostly um, struggled with eating. Um, we we couldn't ever really figure out what it was. It took a lot of time and a lot of twists and turns. Um, but because uh, as a mother, and I think I can say specifically as a Jewish mother with all the stereotypes that go with that, feeding not being able to feed my child was the singular most frustrating thing I'd ever experienced. Um, and there isn't a lot of talking about that. There's not a lot of books out there um, that I could have gone to for help. Um, the internet was young and uh, not not nearly as as populated as it is now. Um, and I needed I needed a story that would have reflected my own experience and frustrations and heartache back at me. And it didn't exist. Uh, and because I'm a writer by training, and because that's how I process my thoughts, um, I remembered back in graduate school when my professors would say, you know, why don't you write the book you need to read? Mm. Um, Write the book you'd want to read. And that's what kitchen medicine is. Mm. And Debbie, your
2: daughter now is uh, how old? 16. 16. So when, and again, I don't want to put too much of a cap on this because I'm sure there was like a lot of experiences even, you know, beyond, you know, when it started, when it ended, and I'm putting that in air quotes. But how long has it been since you felt like you had some answers or somewhat of closure around this issue? Can you give us a timeline? Well,
0: before that, what what is the issue? What is the question?
2: Well, and I feel like that'll be okay. Okay, you know, like what you know, because it was it was a medical journey. This is obviously about eating, but it's also about you know, like you said, specialty pediatric medicine. So. Mm -hmm.
1: Sure. So um, I can say that the the surgery that finally resolved her problems and set us on a path toward her being sort of a fully healthy, quote unquote, normal child um, took place when she was eight. Um, And I feel like it took another six months or so after that for her to really get the swing of feeling comfortable and safe in her own body. Um, And so, you know, we're talking about, you know, just about eight years now.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, um, I, I haven't read the book, so I don't know the story. Uh, it, is it like the deal where you go to the doctor's appointments and she's on the chart and she's on the really low end of the chart and they're like, well, you got to feed this kid more? Is that yes. a, a good summary of of how this yeah, challenge presented least. itself?
1: Yes. And if only doctors were sort of that straightforward about it. <laughs> Todd. But um, the the way that doctors talk to parents of kids in this category, kids who are you know, other other clinging with their fingernails to the bottoms of the growth chart, or not on it, or not progressing in the way that that a, a sort of traditional growth projection looks. Um, they use the words failure to thrive, and that's why that's in the title of my book, which I think is such a loaded and judgmental term. Is if you would have looked at my daughter Sammy at any point during this journey. I would say 90% of the time, you wouldn't look at her and think this child was struggling to thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, She was developmentally on track. She had pink cheeks. Um, She was height, weight, proportionate, but she was and remains teeny tiny. Um, at 16 and fully grown, she is four foot nine and a half. She's mm-hmm. just a little person. Um, but but those kinds of calculations d- didn't really figure into conversations. So when I would take her to the doctor for something and she'd pop up onto the scale, the nurses or the doctors would tend to kind of click their tongues at me and, uh, and say, oh, still failure to thrive, mom. Got to get a few more calories into this kid as though that wasn't my whole reason for being on earth was trying to get more calories into this kid. Um, everyone kept telling us along the way, you know, if you just do this, then she'll have that big growth spurt and she'll catch up. Oh, well, that wasn't it, but now maybe you should try this. Mm. Now we think it's that. Um, and it all along the way, um, although they blamed me Mm. and wagged their fingers at me, um, there, there really wasn't anything I could have done. Mm. Um, it took a long time to know that. Yeah and
2: that's something you you talk about a lot is about how this failure to thrive really ends up feeling like failure to parent correctly like mm-hmm. and, and I shouldn't even say parent it falls a lot on mom because of yeah. traditional you know expectations of aren't you the one feeding them? you're the one with them, you're the one cooking there's so that's like this is so multi-layered and all the things that Todd and I talk about there's so many places that we can go. but just to kind of make sure that everybody has a full focus or, or you know full scope of what was going on with your daughter, can you tell us what they thought the diagnosis was and what ended up being the true diagnosis mm-hmm. that's helped her get to a place where you feel like she's like you said more typical.
1: Sure, without getting too deep into the weeds on all this medical terminology. Um, although, um, although at a year old, she was diagnosed with a congenital heart condition, um, the surgery that she had at a year old was supposed to be a kind of a one and done. The doctors uh, described it that way to me. We don't see these kids again just go on to live healthy lives. And so no one ever brought it up again. Um, but at the age of four, she was still having what, um, most parents of babies would think about as, as reflux symptoms. You know, you'd hear a kind of a little cough and a little gag. And then she'd tell me that it was just her breakfast in her mouth again. Um, and it would have been, you know, an hour or so since breakfast. And so when we took her back to the, the gastroenterology department, they, um, immediately diagnosed a, a very rare disease called eosinophilic esophagitis, which is a um, almost like having eczema in your esophagus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an inflammatory condition and almost always, not always, but almost always related to um, a special type of food allergy. Um, not like the kind that you can get diagnosed with skin tests at the allergist, but one that you can only identify by eliminating major allergens from your diet, and then adding them back in one at a time and testing the esophagus to see if that if that if those white blood cells have reappeared. And so we did that. Um, everything they said, removed dairy, soy, egg, wheat, and nuts from her already vegetarian diet and added them back one at a time with endoscopies between each one and biopsies of her esophagus between each one. Um, and we're never able to identify a food that created a problem, but that remained the diagnosis um, until three and a half years later when a doctor made an offhand comment, um, and I don't wanna give away too much of the the excitement of the book, that um, that led us back to her original congenital heart condition. Mm -hmm. Um, And a second surgery at the age of eight um, resolved the issues in her esophagus pretty much immediately. And in fact, today is the eighth anniversary of that surgery.
2: Oh, wow, mm-hmm. wow, what a special what a day, you know. Yeah. This this time period, maybe the way spring smells, everything mm-hmm. about Chicago kind of reminds you of that time period. That's how I tend to yes, you know has deal with anniversaries. And so mm-hmm. that's like I'm going to totally cuz like you said, the story is in the book and I want people mm-hmm. to go to the book to get the whole story, but like for you, let's focus on you mm-hmm. Debbie for a second is how are you <laughs> This is like a really broad question. <laughs> how are you different because of this experience because you have an older daughter. So Mm -hmm. Sammy, wasn't your first experience with parenting. So this wasn't like, wow, parenting's really a certain way or feeding a child is really a certain way. This was really specific to your daughter's, you know, challenge. And so how, what, what changed in you in this process?
1: I mean, I think it wouldn't be overstating it to say everything. Mm -hmm. Um, I um, I was worried about having daughters both times that I was pregnant because I knew how um, hard it was going to be to raise girls in a world where their bodies were always going to be under scrutiny, where they, from outside and inside, um, how was I gonna raise daughters with a healthy attitude toward their bodies and toward food? Um, and there was a part of me that, you know, kind of didn't even think about it during pregnancy, just decided I was having boys. And um, you can tell how that went. So um, so I have two daughters and my first loved everything. And that woke my own curiosity and love of food up in a really beautiful way. Um, just how excited she was about everything made me want to show her and offer her everything. Um so that when my second daughter was born and wouldn't eat anything, it was, you know, a slap, mm. a, a shake, you know, it was it really shook me up. Mm. Um at the same time in all of these years of restrictions for my younger daughter which we tried as often as possible to approach as a family when we were together so that we weren't eating differently from her. Um I really had to push hard to find that same joy and that same appreciation for food and that same balance in the language around food that I that had frightened me about having daughters in the first place. I was not going to let this affect their their feelings about food. Mm-hmm. Um and so there's that phrase, you know, fake it till you make it. I, I had I grew up in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I remember all of that stuff, and and you'll see it in my book, also some memories of Weight Watchers and Snackwells cookies and all of that stuff, and and in rat- trying to model better for my daughters under this insane pressure cooker of elimination diets and um, and and all of that, um, I think somehow I talked myself into it too, mm. um, and so my own attitudes about food and about eating and about bodies are radically different from the day that I became pregnant with my first daughter. Mm.
2: Mm. Yeah, you know, Todd and I have some experience um, with eating disorders, obviously, personally and professionally. And even though these are uh, these, these are different in that, you know, you're talking about something that's, that is medical and not that eating disorders are not, but what I mean is that an experience she had where it was not necessarily about anxiety or, you know, diet culture per se, it was something she was forced to do to stay medically sound. the same kind of mentality is built around it as far as how people perceive the experience and the misunderstanding. And, And I will say that that is also the case, you know, coming into contact with clinicians or with doctors, there's really not a lot of understanding about these issues around eating. And, you know, some of the things that like there's a story you told and I don't think it's actually in the book. I think it's cuz I was telling you I follow you on Twitter and I and I read your articles and everything and and there were you know a story about how there was um an experience where your daughter was m- she was drinking some kind of liquid, um, which was supposed to sustain her. And that there was some outside commentary or a friend said something to like, well, at least she won't have weight issues then if she has to drink this her whole life Mm -hmm. and how like, wow, like we were more, we're more engaged with the fact that maybe she'll be skinny and look the way girls are supposed to look. And again, I'm putting that in quotes, air Mm -hmm. quotes compared to this person may not be able to enjoy food and they're struggling medically and that we would somehow our diet culture mentality really messes with our ability to see clearly. I, so could you speak to, to that a little more?
1: Yes. And I have to say that that's something I talked about on, um, Virginia soul Smith's burnt toast podcast, which, right, um, yeah. which is, um, Virginia was, was also sort of gobsmacked by that comment in the same way I was. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I was shocked over and over and over, over and over and over, over the years, by the ways that people um, looked at this, you know, four-year-old, six-year-old, eight-year-old girl, and projected, you know, these adult attitudes about body shape on her. When, you know, I was just hoping she'd survive the next procedure. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just hoping I could get her through this without demonizing some food for her. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's a, it's a sickness in American culture that does this to us Um, and, and horrifying um, to watch, to watch happen. And um, there were, there were moments when um, I was trying desperately to get her to eat, you know, more, more fat um, and was putting like a whole avocado in her lunch every day, which is a lovely, delicious, healthy food and um, something she really loved and, and was cautioned by someone in my family that I shouldn't get her used to. Those kinds of flavors, because then she'd like them a lot, and she would end up fat someday. Um, and you know, from that person's mouth to God ear, God's ears, that my daughter should end up fat someday. If that's if it meant that she was alive and healthy, and you know, mm. I could not care less. So um, and never have.
0: So I feel like uh, I might unfairly kind of encapsulate what we're talking about here. One is because I'm just hearing the story for the first time. Your daughter had a specific from when she was born, medical issue. And then the second half of what I feel like we're talking about is the more general um, issue of eating disorders and bulimia and anorexia and diet culture and all that. So I just want to make sure I know. And the first thing is I'm I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody listening saying, oh my God, my four-year-old too, please tell me what that thing was. So Mm -hmm. I first want to like say- She did what what was the operation that happened when she was 8 years old
1: so sammy had an operation at 8 um for um to do, the procedure is called an aortopexy. um sammy's aorta was compressing her esophagus on one side and on the other side of her esophagus scar tissue from her first surgery had trapped it in place and so if you can picture harry potter's scar um, that is the shape that Sammy's esophagus was in. Um, your esophagus should be shaped like a gently curved straw from your mouth to your stomach, mm-hmm. um, and hers was had right right turns in it. Um, so the procedure that moved her aorta out of the way is called an aortopexy. So her aorta is now sewn to her rib cage with a metal suture, and all the scar tissue on the other side was cleaned up. Um, that is an exceedingly rare situation. Um, very, very uncommon. And so, um, while I hope that every parent whose kid is struggling to eat has kind of an aha moment like that with such a, a relatively straightforward solution. Um, I do want to say that it's, it's pretty rare.
0: Okay. Thank you for that.
2: Yeah. Sorry, Ted. I, I thought, um, I did, she didn't specify, but it, that it ended up being a heart issue and not an esophagus issue because mm-hmm. they were doing all these, like trying to figure out, they were doing all these elimination diets, trying to figure out what happened. And Mm -hmm. really that wasn't the issue. And so that's kind of, you know, I'm going to go probably back to diet culture stuff, but Mm -hmm. I do want to go down the path of a medically complex child Mm -hmm. too. And because you, regardless of what diagnosis is, you definitely have a lot of community around a child who is medically, you know, complex, who you're trying to advocate for them when you're in the, you know, ironically in the doctor's office, even where that's your team. Um, and you know, I know you you say this too, it's not about all, but there are some because there are, obviously there are doctors you worked with who you adored and who walked you mm-hmm. through the process, but there are some that it was a little more challenging. So as far as having a medically complex child, like what what did you find to be helpful? Um, not just in the eating, but in the overall emotional well-being, and what was the most detrimental?
1: Um, I think that that was there really There may have been a bunch of people around us, but they were not working as a team. Mm. Um, Even within the same hospital, even when they were three floors apart, Um, that is a, a, I think, a huge problem with how um, any specialty medicine works these days, um, unfortunately. And so, um, so it would have been great if I could have convinced everybody to. Get on a conference call together, um, mm-hmm. or something like that. But I don't think I understood the extent of the dysfunction until it was ragingly obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the only thing that I can say helped is that um, the team I really did have was my own community, mm-hmm. um, other parents, family members, um, even some of the the teachers in my daughter's school, um, and and our core little foursome here in our house. Um, we approached this as a group, um, even though my kids were little, we, you know, we stuck by each other on it. Um, that doesn't mean that every moment was full of grace, but, um, but we, we were really, um, all aiming for the same goal. We all adore Sammy. We all adored each other. Um, and that is the, I think the only thing that kept us from turning on each other or losing our minds or giving up or something like that. Mm.
2: Exactly. Like the team approach is, uh, I, I really advocate for that. I, I practice it personally when we're having a struggle. And I also, when a family shares that they are struggling with something, be it emotional, physical, you know, something that's going on in the world that they're dealing with that you you really create a team and in someone has to be the kind of organizer of the team which you know it sounds like debbie you know that was you you know who who kind of said this is how we're going to do this and can you help us with this and and it's interesting people really want to help mm-hmm. um you know it's a very simple thing to say and i know we hear it all the time but when i have reached out in crisis or just in like hey you know my kid could use some support people are so Grateful to be asked. Um, you know, I'm sure there's outliers there who are like, I'm too busy, but for the most part, you know, did did you find that too that people were really willing to step up?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I can't say how lucky we are. In particular, my my husband's family is all local. Um, mine is far away, but my husband's family is local and they were incredible. I mean, we were we had to be extremely careful on some of these elimination diets, and they bought fresh pots and pans and disposable cutting boards and scoured health food stores for us. And that was incredible. Um, but also my local community of friends were were aching for the chance to help. Um, several friends sort of did the same thing, created a set of dishes in the kitchen just for us. Um, one of my friends figured out how to make crispy rice treats with all safe ingredients for my daughter. So she could have snack at camp with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when, uh, after the sur- the last surgery was over, um, We had hoped that we could have kind of one of those meal trains, you know, take them a meal kind of things, but then we were given another diet to follow, and it was so strict that we could not have anybody cooking for us, and one of my friends who had organized it immediately pivoted and made sure that every other day somebody showed up on my porch with a bag of cut up fruit. Just one less thing for me to do. Just incredibly, incredibly lucky to have these people around us. But the people do need to be told what you need. Um, And I've written about this, that like reaching out to someone and saying, how can I help? It's, It's actually giving them work to do. If you say, how can I help? You're asking them as they're clinging to the side of the bridge, to tell you which hand to grab and to decide which, you know, which, which direction to pull you. And they're hanging from a bridge. What, the better thing to do is to call someone and say, I'd love to just come over and fold your laundry for you. Can I do that? I, I, I would love to pick your older daughter up from school and take her out for a snack and then to Hebrew school. Could I do that? Because it just eliminates one more thing from the, the clinging to the edge of the building person's list.
0: Yeah. And you can like translate that to any family in any sure. type of crisis. Like mm-hmm. I've, I've heard that. So maybe you've said this. So does Sammy have, um, now that she's had her surgery eight years ago and all that, does she have restrictions on her diet or can she, what, can she, what, whatever she wants or what?
1: Yeah. She can eat whatever she wants. She's completely healthy. There was yeah. never any,
0: any, so all that work you did for the first eight years had nothing to do with the issue. Correct. Basically. Yep. Been, this is probably unfair, but doesn't that drive you nuts? Absolutely. The amount of work that you had to do, and the doctors who had good intentions just couldn't figure this stuff out.
1: Yes, it does drive me nuts. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Um, however, I, I, you know, I am I am someone who needs to find meaning in struggle, mm. um, and one of the things that I am grateful for is that although I wish we hadn't had to do that. I have now become the resource mm-hmm. in my community and even, wide, even wider than that um, for anyone who has to follow some kind of elimination diet. And I, I jokingly refer to myself as the, sort of the MacGyver of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if you tell me I can't eat X, Y, and Z, and this is the thing I'm going to miss the most, I immediately, even if you don't ask me for it, i am thinking, well, if we tried this other flour and we mixed it with this, and then we could probably use this other thing and i think i can recreate that dish for you mm. um, and it's giving it gives me a lot of um, a lot of peace to know that i can do that for people now um something i wouldn't have been able to do before yeah. so i still wish it hadn't happened it does drive me nuts yeah. and there's gifts in it
2: yeah. Many things can be true at once. Right. right. Yes. Um, So I will, I know you can't speak for her. She's a 16 year old girl and she has her own feelings, mm-hmm. but can you give us kind of an idea of Sammy's perspective on this experience in her life and, and how emotionally, or just kind of like you, has she found meaning in it?
1: Well, so she was eight when it all ended. And so she does not remember a lot of the certainly doesn't remember almost anything of the years of the elimination diets, um, a few little pieces here and there. Um, she does very well remember the, the last surgery and the last diet, um, and um, not fondly, as you can imagine. Um, and but, but she's 16 now, and she doesn't want to be defined by those experiences. When she was in elementary school, she actually got kind of into um, being uh, the the like kid who presented the jump rope for heart event at her school and talked about her experiences with heart surgery. And um, it's not that she's not, that she's embarrassed of it now, but it, it's been over half her life passed without this mm. in, her, in her world. Mm. And so, um, so I think in general, she's, um, She's very, very much okay with the book, very much okay with me sharing the pieces of the story that I've shared. Um, She was like, charmed the heck out of everyone at my um, book launch event by getting up to answer a question about how she felt about the book. Um, So she's, um, you know, the only thing I think that has remained that still bothers her is how small she is. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll never know whether if we had figured this out earlier, whether she would have had that big old gross bird, or whether this is just how she's made mm. but she's tiny um and and it bugs her mm-hmm. uh, she's a junior in high school and she doesn't look like a junior in high school um and she's you know it's hard to find the clothes everybody else is wearing and um that kind of thing so i i think that still bothers her but but the exact experience is mostly I think are, are behind her.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, completely understandable. And and to your point, like it's one of those things, like you won't know, was this the way it was going to be, or was this something that came of? Um, But regardless, here we are. And, and and, and, like for you, this is so much easier as the parent who literally you were so hyper-conscious of everything that was happening. But like you said, thank God, you know, that we're here, you know, what could have been, you know, the challenges, how they could have presented themselves. Thank God. Um, Mm -hmm. we, we figured out how to get here. So I'm kind of going back to a a bit of a diet culture thing, but I want to get into, to food a little more Mm -hmm. as far as your experience with it. So one of the quotes that, um, that Todd and I love, and I think I saw you use it, or I heard, like you said, on a podcast, you use it Mm -hmm. is talking about how food is neutral Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think when I say that to people, when I talk about food being neutral, and it's really about our stories, how it's used, when it's used, how much, and it, it becomes, people don't believe it. I think we have a feeling of, it's kind of like, I'm a little more focused on emotions and people believe we have good and bad emotions. People believe that we have good and bad reactions. We're very binary in our thinking. So could you talk a little bit more about food is neutral and you know how you came to understand that?
1: Sure. Um, I grew up in, as I said, in the '80s when everyone's parents that I knew was, you know, were on Weight Watchers or Nutrisystem or one of these liquid shake things from the strip malls, and um, and that was the time of fat-free or low-fat stuff. Um, and and there's a, a, a home video of my, I think it was my 12th birthday, in between Hebrew school and violin lessons, at a fast food place where my father had arrived with a cake, um, and you can hear after they sang happy birthday in the background as I'm slicing the cake, my mother's saying, I'm not having any, I'm going to be good. I'm being good. I'm not going to have any. Um, and you can see across my face, the question that flickers there. If I have some, am I not being good? What, what are the rules? Um, and I was bound and determined not to have that experience of food in my house. And boy, did the universe test me on it. Yeah. Um, so um, when we had to start, you know, eliminating foods, and even early on when we thought all Sammy had was reflux, she, she wasn't supposed to have citrus or tomatoes or chocolate, um, and so we used the food the the phrase safe for Sammy in place of no food. The, you know, some people use that's a no no food or that's that's a bad food. Or that's a dangerous food. We just used the phrase "safe for Sammy" or "not safe for Sammy." Um, that was very deliberate, um, and and because the goalpost changed often, it remained a good choice um, because we framed a lot of the elimination diet stuff as a big old science experiment. We're gonna now we're gonna see what happens to Sammy's esophagus when we give her eggs. Let's see what happens, and so. I took the the food item out of the equation as you know um is vict- a villain or something like that you know we, it was just part of our experiment um and so at the same time I also was conscious of not wanting to um either turn desserts or treats or chips or whatever into rewards for things or forbidden items or something like that because I knew Just from reading that that is, you know, that's not, that's not how our brains are going to react to them they're going to rebel and jump for them. And so I've never really limited those things in our house. Um, We've always almost always have dessert around. Um, Some nights, we have it some nights we're not in the mood because we filled up on dinner. Um, and the best analogy I can, I've used in public is that um, we're huge Oreo fans in our house. Um, yeah, love Oreos. We try, we have a, a tradition of trying every new Oreo flavor when it comes out and reviewing it on Facebook um, in, a, in a video. And so we love them. But the other thing we absolutely love are sautéed Brussels sprouts. Mm -hmm. Um, And Sammy and I in particular, like there's never leftovers. There's never leftover Brussels sprouts. And on the nights when I serve them, we we don't have room for dessert because we've Mm -hmm. just filled up on Brussels sprouts. And that's how I that's what I mean when I say food is neutral. We eat too much Brussels sprouts. (laughs) No, I don't think so. We ate until we were full.
0: And I know some kids have a really wonderful palate. It took me a long time to mature as an eater. Like Brussels sprouts growing up, it smelled disgusting. It looked disgusting. I have a feeling if I, if I tasted it when I was eight years old, it would be disgusting. And then like three years ago, somebody like, I don't know what they did to it, but it was like the most delicious meal I have ever had. And um, I'm challenging Sweetie a little bit. Um, the Oreos, you say you love Oreos but you don't consume the the entire oreo cookie on no. most occasions.
2: I'm not well okay so few things I don't do. So I'm not as good as Debbie about trying all sorts of different kinds. My favorite <laughs> is double stuff and then I on I get mega stuff sometimes because Which one's
0: bigger, mega or double? Mega is bigger. Mega. Okay.
2: Yeah, but I really sometimes turn a double into a mega. And so what he's saying that I don't eat is I take the top off and then make one into it. So I feel very, very similar to you, Debbie. It's part of the reason I love your writing and your book because mm-hmm. I feel like you have such a... um i don't even want to say i don't even we don't we try not to even use the word healthy around here because what does healthy mean like you know people say they're eating clean or they're eating healthy it's like what does that mean depending on the context right emotionally healthy you know what a doctor tells you is healthy what the calories say like it gets confusing but eating in a way that is for your body, for you for joy um you know you have a very thoughtful way of, you know, talking about food and and making it not such a antagonistic relationship. You know, the, I also, you know, obviously, as you said, I grew up in the eighties too, and everything was a diet. Everything like skim fast was like, is that what it was called? Skim fast. Yeah. Yes, slim fast. Slim fast. I call it a skin fast. Slim fast. It, it was just so normalized. And, and that has continued. Um, You know, I was just with my college girlfriends this weekend, and we were having discussions about these very things that you and I are talking about right now and how we're still so. Um, we're still so working through this of our history and, and, and I don't think there's a generation that hasn't struggled with it. I don't think it's just a Gen X thing. And obviously you were very thoughtful about what you're passing on to your daughters. And do you have like, just as somebody who's kind of a, you know, now, like you said, you're kind of an expert in this area. What is your, with this generation, are you hopeful Do you see a difference in millennials and in um, Gen Z as far as how they are with food? Do you see us perpetuating the same challenge? What do you think?
1: Well, I think something that's interesting, and I I don't have a way of knowing whether this is in part of my my kids circle or whether it's broader, but I notice a lot of kids that are cooking, which Mm -hmm. I did not do at that age. I did not have an appreciation for for cooking at all, or even really for like you know quality ingredients versus not quality ingredients. I just I didn't know that. But my kids and their friends, many of them really enjoy cooking and baking, and in really creative ways. Um, one of my my younger daughter's friends is um, she and I share recipes with each other. I mean, uh, I think that's wonderful, and I think cooking is one of the not the only, but one of the ways to turn someone into um, an appreciator of food rather than, you know, someone who's like either trying to, you know, ignore it or trying to manipulate it for their, whatever they think their body should look like, like to, to sit there with some um, fresh ingredients and cut them up and, you know, appreciate as they, how they change in the course of cooking or what they're using. I, I think it, it changes your relationship to food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm hopeful that this generation that is like watching cooking videos on Instagram and TikTok um, may come out of this with an attitude about food that is more creative than what I had access to.
0: I'm so um, so. It's funny you beat me to the punch because Instagram <laughs> and all the social media platforms there can be such a negativity as a result of you know body image and all the mm-hmm. things that we see. So I'm I'm appreciating you right now for talking about some of the good things that can come out of it. I wonder if you want to touch upon some of the messages that our kids, not just girls, by the way, I, I think boys, I don't know if they struggle with it as much, but I know they struggle with uh, body image stuff.
2: Yeah. We've learned, you know, one thing we, we learned is how high the rate is for eating disorders with boys. And we don't tend to, because we don't understand that, especially families, um, there's a lot more shame around it. So, you know, so ask your question again, Tom.
0: Um, I guess I just want to know if you have any experience or opinions on how messed up some of these social media platforms are in regards to telling our kids what a body is supposed to look like.
1: Um, Well, I think we all know that they are disastrous for for kids of all genders with regard to um with regard to body image and that's that's not news and I don't have to be an expert to share that opinion um however i think we have a fighting chance of of having our kids be a critical viewers of online content if we start at a very young age not talking like that not not describing people in those terms not I don't not, not judging people in those terms. Um I have um we have friends and family members of all different sizes who I have since my children were little described as beautiful. Look at how beautiful your, you know, I'm going to make up a name so I'm not insulting anybody. Your your Aunt Matilda looks in that sweater. Um oh my goodness, you know, Uncle George has um, has such a great head of hair whatever these things are that we're describing beauty um, mm. separated from the shape of a person's body um, and if and as tv and media enter our kids lives better not cartoons um, to, to ask those sort of critical questions over time um, What? wow why is that Woman wearing such a tiny little shirt when she's skiing. You know, Mm -hmm. why do you think she felt like she had to do that? Or um, why are why are these television shows only showing white women with thin bodies? Where are the where are the curvy girls with the great behinds? You know, Mm -hmm. or or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, To be asking those questions and talking about that from when they're very young. I think gives them, gives us a leg up. It's not enough. Um, we're fighting against a a massive tide of negativity, but I have seen, um, as I look over my kids' shoulders and see their Instagram of a bigger variety of shapes Mm -hmm. in their feeds, um, and bigger variety of shapes who are enjoying themselves and their bodies and their way they dress themselves and all of that. There's some really great accounts out there, um, that I think about, Look, there's a, a one on Instagram called style for you with the letter U where a mother daughter team interv- is interviewing people about their bodies, um, that I think is great. And there are some, you know, people of all sizes and, and skin colors and gender identities and expressions that are feeling themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's helpful also. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a lot of the other stuff. And I think it's just kind of like what you've been saying on your podcast all along, that this is conversations with our kids that just have to be ongoing, especially when they're teenagers.
0: Well, we bring pop culture into it a lot, um, mm-hmm. Lizzo, I don't know if you've yes. ever seen her cover, but she's naked yeah. and she has a different shape Gorgeous. body than most and i just love and kathy and i just started watching euphoria and there's um a, a girl in there that kind of owns her her body, body type lineage, yeah. not necessarily making the best decisions what to well, do it's with euphoria, that it's so. euphoria um, i don't know if you know that it's an hbo series yeah, yeah. kind of crazy
2: i think the gist of it is is like we're seeing more mm-hmm. you know mainstream more like even like american eagle you know the the uh, models that they're using—it's—it's—it's it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot more diverse than it used to be. If it be body type, if it be you know race, if it be you know like you said, all genders are being you know so, and these things—it—it's over time. It's not like one ad campaign is going to make our kids right. look differently. It's not like one Instagram account, but it starts to become more normalized and mainstream and a lot more body acceptance. Mm-hmm.
1: So. I- Go ahead. Well, I'd also like to just challenge something that Todd said a second ago, which is that Lizzo's body isn't the 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 I don't know what word, remember what word use the average body, mm-hmm. but actually Lizzo's body is closer the average, to the average American woman's body. The yeah. average American woman's body, I believe, is like a size fourteen mm-hmm. or something like that. And so, um, and so, what we're seeing presented to us in the media are either genetic freaks or people who have manipulated their bodies in unhealthy and unnatural ways to look the way they do. An average woman looks much more like Lizzo than than like Zendaya.
0: Well, I I appreciate you challenging me. And Mm -hmm. I I think more in terms of who we see in the top 40 is is an outlier. But yes, I, I think your point is well taken in what a normal body type looks like is Mm -hmm. um, different than what we see in magazines and videos and everything else. Mm -hmm.
2: Like Mm -hmm. you said, you know, average woman, average women, you know, who Mm -hmm. we're experiencing on an everyday level ourselves. And on Mm -hmm. that note, like with your, with your book, like we're Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, we're we're talking about Sammy's specific story, your journey. We talked about, Mm -hmm. you know, medically complex children, emotions, you know, all of these experiences. Is there any layer that we didn't get to that you wanna to speak to? Like something I didn't ask you where you're like, well, here's one more message that I wanted to make sure people got.
1: Um, I think that there's a, there's the, the layer of medical complexity um, in, includes um, a, a lot more, um, could include a lot more nuance about how parents get involved in these conversations with their, their kids, um, doctors and other medical professionals. Um, in, and there is, um, I think, a, a, like a, a layer of, of erasure that happens to parents, in particular women, on this topic. Um, I've had experiences where doctors have used my husband's name and referred to me as mom. Mm. Um, I've had experiences where, where doctors, I can tell they're not listening to me. They're mm. typing and they're saying, "Mm-hmm, yep," and um, and not actually listening to my questions. And that actually. Is the sort of climax of the book, which I won't give away, but um, but but it, the importance of having medical practitioners see the parents of young children as part of the solution and part of the diagnostic or um, treatment team. Um, I don't think all doctors or medical practitioners do that. Mm. Um, some of them absolutely do, and we had some wonderful wonderful folks on our journey that that did. But a lot of them kind of, I felt like saw me sort of like a pharmacy, mm-hmm. like they send the order and then the, the, the mom unit drives the kid to the appointments and prepares the allergen free food and shuts up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, that's not just not very nice. It's also sometimes counterproductive mm-hmm. because while a doctor may understand say diabetes, The doctor does not understand how day-to-day this person's child is dealing with blood sugar. What are these this child's activities all day long? What is this child's um, favorite foods? What are they missing out on? Um, How are they sleeping? How often are they going to the bathroom? Is it different from last month? These are the questions that a parent, caregiver can answer. In my case, I only know what it's like to be the mother of this caregiving team. And um, and I could have been such a better resource to them had they utilized me better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's important for parents to see themselves that way and to enter into these relationships in their power in that way.
0: Well, there's probably some sexism in there, some e- egoic doctors who don't who think they know it all. I mean, there's a plot probably a lot of con- contributing factors that went into the fact that you had helpful information that they can use i mean their whole job is diagnostics right and they just you know sounds like they could have done a lot better job
2: but just when when debbie when you said that you know mom i can't tell you how often i'm called that in those kind of situations where if you're not in a crisis situation maybe you kind of just you know let it go you know it's not something but when you said that i had such a visceral response like how often i've been called mom by you know By
1: someone who isn't your child. Right. Right. Now, absolutely, I I give a a lot of of leeway for emergency room people Mm -hmm. or even inpatient nurses who are on shift. I can't expect them to remember my name or look it up. And if they need me, I want them to get my attention, you know. But if I've been in, you know, bringing my child to you for three years, you should write my name on the top of the chart. And (laughs) at minimum, if you don't want to do that, try Mrs. Lewis. Yeah. I'm, uh, I am more than the position that I hold in this relationship. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. That's a great thing to
2: say. So, um, I, I want to end on this question. Do you mm-hmm. play your fiddle with a <laughs> band or somewhere, or do you do it for joy?
1: Now, right now, I, I do it for joy. I was in bands for many, many years. It was great fun playing for um, square and contra dances. Um, and uh, but I, uh, my band has moved uh, away from the country. Some of my my partners are moved away, and I haven't uh, found a new one. But I do still sit out on my back porch and and play for myself. And someday, I'm sure I'll get back into going to festivals and such. COVID kind of ended yeah. that for a little while. Yeah. But I do love to play.
0: Good.
2: Mm. I love that you
0: play. So Debbie, how do people track you? How do they follow you? How do they get, learn more about your, me- you and your message?
1: Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at GrowTheSunshine. sunshine. Um, that's because Sammy was always our Sammy sunshine. Mm. Um, and, um, you can find my website at, uh, debbielewis.com. it's D E B I L E W I S.com. Um, and you can get kitchen medicine anywhere, order it from your local independent bookstore. That's always my first choice, but it's also on Barnes and Noble and Amazon and bookshop.org and all those fun places. And
2: Debbie, I want to ask, what is your older daughter's name? Ronnie. Ronnie. Okay. And And she she is how old now?
1: She is almost 20, which seems impossible. Um, Mm -hmm. She's away at college, um, but we'll be going there this weekend to spend Passover at a at, near her. So we can, all be together. Mm.
2: Great. Cause I know siblings are such a huge part of the team too. such part of, you know, they're part, as you said, your family was in it together. So you definitely mentioned her. It's just, you know, we never really said her name in And I know how it, when it's a team effort, the other kids are very involved too. Yeah.
1: And I have to say, I, I write very little about her because she's older and because she was a teenager when I started writing, but she is, you know, the, one of the greatest joys of my life and the best big sister mm. we could have, you know, could have ever hoped for and a great human being in her own right. Yes. And just like you, Debbie Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you.
2: Yes. So thank you for coming here and telling us about your book, Kitchen Medicine. Um, I want to read the whole title again, probably mm-hmm. Kitchen Medicine, How I Fed My Daughter Out of Failure to Thrive. It is already out. There it is. Mm-hmm. It came out March 15th. It's available everywhere. Like Debbie said, make sure you go to your independent bookstores first, um, but it is everywhere and, Todd, anything
0: else? No, I just want to I'm gonna play my outro music and say thank you so much to Debbie for joining us. Debbie, so glad that we met you and I'm so glad our listeners had an opportunity to listen to your message.
1: Oh, it's great uh, to talk with you both.
0: So we will catch you all um, next
2: week. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have appreciated or enjoyed a decade of Zen Parenting Radio podcasts, please tell a friend or leave a five-star review. We are always grateful for your support.
0: If you want more Zen Parenting, consider joining Team Zen Pre ordering Kathy's Zen Parenting book or subscribing to Zen Parenting Moment. You can find these opportunities and more at ZenParentingRadio.com.
2: If you want to connect through social networking, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep trucking, and we will talk to you again next week.